Okay, good evening everyone. Wednesday. Now these have been sessions mainly focused on Q&A and of course mainly focused on meditation. I think uh, I might start putting a little more emphasis on the talk part, be able to give out a little more general dhamma before we start into the questions. I've been doing that mostly, but we might give these uh, sessions titles based on talks, based on a topic. Questions should still be only about meditation. That's our focus. And the talks will hopefully be about meditation. One thing that I haven't talked about lot and a lot lately and I find myself not talking about maybe enough is the the three characteristics. Vipassana means to see clearly. It's the whole problem. Problem is we don't see clearly. Our vision is impaired. Does it mean our vision is impaired? The way we look at things is skewed, is is inaccurate, imprecise. There's a lot of misunderstanding about things, misunderstanding about suffering and the cause of suffering. Uh, misunderstandings that are, are dangerous. There are misunderstandings that aren't dangerous. Of course, you can uh, you can misunderstand things in in the world, mistake people. You look at someone and you think it's someone you know, and then it's not someone you know. And maybe you go up to them and you say, "Oh, hey, how are, oh no, I'm sorry, I thought you were someone else." And you might say, "Well, that's dangerous," but it's not that kind of dangerous. This is dangerous on a deeper level, on an experiential level. And so the, the, the seeing clearly that's important revolves around three things, and these are called the three characteristics. The first one is impermanence. Our grave misunderstanding about impermanence We cling to things, people, places, possessions. We, we cling to the states, a state of things. And by cling, it, it's quite, it can be quite subtle. It's not clinging on for dear life, but we become comfortable, complacent. So last year, this time, Last year this time everyone was preparing for the for Christmas getting ready for the end of the year quite happy many people perhaps with the way things were going and then things changed a lot this year many people's lives were disrupted Many people's lives were intensely disrupted with the loss of a family member, friend, or for some, of course, the loss of their own life. That's quite a disruption. Life is impermanent. We might make all these great plans only to have our life cut short. And on the other on the other side, of course, we're we obsess over problems, things, experiences, states that are unpleasant. Pain and undesirable experiences or interactions. As, as though they were 
uh, a problem for us as though they were something that was a, a, a static part of reality so impermanence cuts both way realizing we often hear about it in popular culture impermanence is something that's good to good to know about good for you it's much nicer they would say because the bad things in life they also go they also disappear but it cuts both ways bad things you shouldn't be concerned with them they come and they go but good things as well but impermanence isn't isn't considered to be a positive thing impermanence is the problem it's why we can't fix things the three characteristics are the reason why nothing's worth clinging to nothing's worth getting bent out of shape over nothing's worth obsessing or stressing over And so this is the first thing we, we see clearly in meditation by focusing on our experience. We come to see how we cling to things that, that disappear and then stress about when they're gone or we stress and fuss about things that arise and we're able to watch ourselves react violently every time something arises. So every time a pain comes, we watch ourselves dislike it again and again and again. And we start to see how, how uh, unpredictable reality is. And we realize that our lack of clarity of vision in relation to impermanence leads us to cling to things it's led us to cultivate habits of reacting and habits of of trying to control views and and perceptions of things being under our control so we try to keep things we try to keep things here with us that we like. We try to keep away things that we don't like. We're constantly living this battle. We wonder why we suffer when we're constantly fighting with reality. Because only part of reality is acceptable. The other part is unacceptable. We aren't flexible. We aren't adaptable. We have to be in control. And so we suffer. Because reality is unpredictable and everything that we like and hold dear is going to go or or may come may go at any time and everything we don't like and can't bear might come at any time at any moment the second one is of course suffering Suffering is something that we don't see. Suffering here is, it's just a, a placeholder translation. Suffering is maybe a literal translation of dukkha, but a lot of people try to nuance that. It doesn't really matter, it's just a word. But the meaning of suffering is it's not, not happiness. Meaning that everything in the world, inside of ourselves and in the world around us, is not happiness. Candy is not happiness. Good food is not happiness. People, places, things, possessions, none of these are happiness. If your happiness depends on this or that thing, well, remember, it's impermanent. It's never going to make you happy. Because once you take something as happiness, it becomes a dependency. That's how the mind works. It becomes accustomed to it. It desires it. It's disappointed when it doesn't get it. And more precisely in meditation, what you see is that 
it's incessant. Anything that you might have said, oh, this is happiness, can be broken down into moments of experience that are incessant. They arise and cease. They don't last even for a thunderclap, a lightning flash. They can disappear in an instant, change in, an, in a moment. Without any, without any sign or warning. And you see that there's really nothing inherent in pleasure or beauty that is desirable. There's nothing inherent in pain or ugliness that is undesirable. They're just all experiences. You know, to start to see that happiness is just a fickle thing. It's 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 something that we've uh, bound to certain experience it's become a slave to our experiences it's arbitrary some people find certain things attractive and those things trigger happiness pleasure calm and other things upset one person don't upset another person it's arbitrary And so it's not that a person who practices meditation becomes unhappy or gives up happiness. It's that they free their happiness from dependency. Happiness is not tied to this or that object. They live at ease in the strength of mind, in the clarity of mind, in the flexibility that is above this push and pull, addiction and aversion and fear and anxiety about everything. And the third one is non-self. Non-self. Non-self is an important aspect of reality because if things are just impermanent, that wouldn't be a problem because you just turn them back on every time you want them. But by impermanent, we mean really impermanent and unpredictable. And that, that involves the characteristic of non-self, meaning it's not you who decides. Any intention we might have, ambition we might have, brings about a result. But it's not like you decide what the result is. You can't do one thing and have uh, two different results possible. If you plant a lemon seed, you get a lemon tree. If you plant an orange, orange seed, you get an orange tree. If you do a good deed, good deed, good things come from it. If you're mean and nasty and evil, bad things come from it. And so we don't get to choose. We aren't we aren't in control of of what brings what result. So, for example, we we decide that we want something to stay, we decide we want something to go, we try to destroy the things that hurt us and build up the things that please us. And total, totally ignorant of the chaos and the unpredictable nature of reality, we try to control and we suffer. We suffer specifically because of our perception that things are controllable. We suffer because of the stress involved with reacting every time things go out of control. We react. Uh, we react when we can't control 
when 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 it, our efforts are in vain and we relate things to ourselves i did something wrong i lost something i have a problem bad things happen to me So we suffer because of our, our perception of self in many ways. Not to mention conceit and arrogance and so on. Egotism. But in meditation we see clearly that reality is what it is. There's cause and effect and if you build up a certain cause there will be a certain effect. Neither the cause nor the effect is permanent. They're impermanent. And you can't stop that, you can't change that. But if you understand how the world works, you can act in such a way to free yourself from the dependency on things that are out of your control. You come to see, of course, that if everything is arising and ceasing, then there's absolutely nothing that is me or mine. There's only moments. So these three things are, are the essence of vipassana. They're inherent in everything. And the point is that our, our misperception is of them as the opposite. That they are Pleasing and desirable. Sorry, we're just having some technical difficulties, I think. That things are pleasing and desirable, that they are stable and satisfying. They are under our control. And so we build up these addictions and aversions, these biases to everything. And all that is a way to describe how depression, anxiety, paranoia, anger and greed and delusion, how they all arise. And so the practical, the most important practical aspect of this is that when you're practicing you're most likely going to be disturbed by the nature of reality and it's going to seem at odds with how you expect things to be. Meditation is not comfortable, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to see impermanent suffering and non-self. You're going to see things clearly and that's not going to endear you to them, is the point. It's going to incline you away from any kind of engagement or involvement with things and it's going to show you how stressful your involvement and engagement and obsession with things is they must be like this may they not be like that I think we've lost Chris though so I'm ready to get into questions but I don't see, think he's here See if we can find him. Otherwise, I can just go through the chat on my own. Or do we have? Oh, there's Chris. Okay, he's back. My connection's restored, Bunte. Welcome back. Thank you for your patience. We do have some questions ready. Okay, just let me get the screen back up. All right, uh, ready when you are. Okay, let's begin. First, is noting an appropriate attention? 
I'm not sure what you mean by appropriate attention. Okay, but if taking it at face value, yes. Noting isn't quite attention. Uh, noting is a technique. It's, used, it's like a mantra. You can think of it in the same way a mantra is used. It's a technique that we use to cultivate clarity of mind, a perception of things just as they are, which we call sati, mindfulness. You could call the the practice in general as appropriate intention, appropriate attention. Recently, I have had weird sensations in my head that make me immediately drowsy. When I relax with this feeling, I have very vivid dreams for fifteen minutes. Is this connected to meditation? So I'm guessing you're not practicing meditation according to our tradition. Um, so I can't really comment on, on that otherwise. But I think I'm not going to answer this directly and say, if you're interested in our meditation technique, you could read our booklet on how to meditate. Maybe even sign up for an at-home course, all of which is free. And you can find information on our website. When feeling anger or greed, is it better to note the feeling, or is it better to restrain the senses to look at something else? It's better to note the feeling. I don't know if you've read our booklet either, but it sounds like you're aware. You're, you're, you know about this tradition. So try and just note angry, angry, or wanting, or liking, or so on. I see, but if you're looking at something like in your daily life, say, and you see something that's attractive or something that makes you angry, right? So it's not an either-or. It's be it's good to restrain the senses, but it, when you feel the anger and the greed, you should note it no matter what. But it is useful to restrain the senses. So do both. Again, you can't control what you're going to see. Non-self. And if you try, you're just going to cause stress and suffering. You're just going to get stressed out because you try to control things. What advice do you have for someone who can go an entire hour sitting session having trouble returning to the rising and falling? I try to return after noting whatever distracts me, but have trouble doing so. I note whatever I'm experiencing, but wonder if I should build more concentration somehow. An hour of sitting, you might try some walking first. It's good to do half walking, half sitting. Um, but having trouble in meditation is a normal part of it. Part of the trouble is the struggle of trying to control and being frustrated because you can't control it your mind will settle down the mind has habits of its own so it's it's constantly giving rise to other other intentions wanting to think wanting to dream wanting to reminisce and so on it takes patience and keep trying to go back to the rising and falling Try not to jump from one object to another, and when you note something, then go back right away. I don't know if you've uh, done the at-home course or thought about it, but you might be interested in taking one of our at-home courses. Does noting help in reducing the thoughts so that only a few thoughts arise instead of thoughts arising all the time? I mean, that wouldn't help. Noting does what I explained. It, it helps you see the three characteristics. One of them is that you can't control things. 
another is that suffering means um, suffering isn't isn't in the things it's um, it's in in our clinging to them so when you want to reduce thoughts for example that's where the suffering is thing everything in the world is is dukkha in the sense that it's like a, a, a hot, hot fire there's nothing wrong with hot fire unless you get involved with it there's nothing wrong with thoughts until you want them to go away or until you want to change them or stop them you know or or vice versa when you opposite when you want them to come and when you encourage them and like to think and so on the problem comes there it's nothing to do with how many thoughts are in your mind so try and look at the thoughts and see them just as thoughts and try to look at your reactions to them when you dislike or frustrated or by them or so on or want them to go away Why is the walking or sitting meditation recommended to limit to 30 minutes? It's not recommended to limit to 30 minutes. We recommend to limit it to an hour. If you're going to do more, an hour is pretty standard, but it's not a hard limit. It's just if you're going to do more, you might want to do walking, sitting, walking, sitting, one hour each. That would be the maximum we'd do normally. because walking meditation is useful as well and the Buddha recommended doing them in alternation Is it possible for people with locked-in syndrome completely paralyzed, sensation of touch lost hearing, sight, and cognitive abilities remain intact to meditate? How can they return to the rising and falling if they cannot feel it? Well, if there's no physical sensation, then they wouldn't use the body as their main object. I mean, that sounds like a pretty rare uh, experience, rare state, but uh, certainly if, if that's the case, they should uh, note something else as their base. Complete lack of... Hmm. They have no physical sensation whatsoever. It's kind of surprising. But say someone was paralyzed from the neck down, they should still have some physical sensation. They could take up the breath at the nose, for example. I've never heard of locked-in syndrome. It doesn't matter, though. Everything is experience, and you can always find some other way to practice. How many times should one do sitting meditation during the day? Is 10 minutes meditation in morning, afternoon, and evening a right practice? I would recommend more than that. I would recommend working up to at least an hour a day, preferably two hours, so an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening, which should be half, 30 minutes walking, 30 minutes sitting in the morning, and the same in the evening. So that's just what I recommend um, because it seems reasonable for most people. If you can do more than that, of course, do more, but... 10, 10, 10 is, you're probably talking about sitting meditation only, and it's very little. But, you know, it's better than nothing, and if that's all you can do, start there. If you're interested, you could think of taking up our at-home course. The requirement for that is an hour a day to start. The booklet says to walk a few meters before turning and walking back, but I usually meditate in my room instead of the living room, which is smaller, so I'm not disturbed. Is that advised? Well, you do need a little bit of room to walk. So uh, if your room is less than three meters, what is that, ten feet? If you don't have ten feet, then you might need to go to a different room. But uh, yeah, but even if you don't, it is possible to do just do walking like six feet or something. You can do walking whatever space you have. It's just that, well, it's it's a small thing. Just do it in six feet, six feet walking, and then turn around, six feet back.
Sometimes I forget to note stopping before I turn in the walking meditation, and sometimes I add extra points to note than what is stated in the booklet. Gee, the heel. Is that also advised? I mean, it's not what's in the booklet is what's advised. Um, so I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not. The phrasing of the question is a bit odd. If it were, can I? Then I'd be like, you can do whatever you want. But we advise what's in the booklet, and then what what is taught uh, in the sessions. If you do the at home course every week, we give you a new exercise. That's what we advise. Do we advise chain, uh, um, straying from that? We do not advise straying from that. In fact, we'd probably advise against it. We advise again. I mean, not not particularly because our way is some special way that is is definitely the best way. It's not even that. It's that that's what we told you to do. And when someone else tells you to do something, you're not depending on your own biases. You're not going to fall fall prey to biases. It's like when you when your teacher tells you to walk and sit so much, like today do this many minutes or so on. Um, which we would do in an intensive course, and you put a timer, then then the timer tells you when when you're able when you can stop. But if you just go, oh no, I'm going to stop. And so it's the same with I'm going to add this, I'm going to add that. It's very easy to get into the habit of just doing what you feel like doing, doing what uh, what you, you know what you think is is right. It's very very hard to be your own teacher. So adding things is not advice. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, those things you're talking about are actually probably similar to things we'd go through in the at-home course. It's just it's better to do it with a teacher. Can you talk about meditation on an alcohol addiction? So I've never been addicted to alcohol, but I used to drink a fair amount when I was a teenager. It was a thing, I mean, not like an alcoholic, because it was more like a weekend thing that we would do. Um, so I think, I don't think alcohol is... I haven't studied enough, but but it, and and so this might be ignorant, but I don't think alcohol is particularly addictive as a substance. Like what alcohol is pretty simple as a substance. You could be addicted to the taste of beer, let's say, or wine, but addicted to alcohol, I don't think is an addiction to the alcohol itself. It's an inability to deal with the uh, ordinary experiences that you that you face without alcohol. Right, so we don't drink alcohol because it is, um, you know, it's it's interacting with our body, physiologic, physiolo our physiology, and creating a, a physical dependency. It's just that our mind reacts to the states when we don't have alcohol, and it begins to react more and more. The more we rely on on alcohol, and the more we use alcohol as a means. Anytime you use anything as a means to get rid of something else, you encourage the aversion to that thing, right? You, re, you, you reinforce it. And so mindfulness is about facing things. And mindfulness will help you to face things that you're not able to normally face. And so, I mean, I would say it's pretty easy for a meditator to overcome something like alcohol addiction, relatively easy, because it's not—it's um, not anything particularly special. No, I mean, it's not—it's not easy. Nothing—nothing nothing about meditation is easy. But relatively speaking, like someone who is addicted to say heroin, I think would have a harder time. But addiction to alcohol seems, to, in my mind, pretty simple. So it's going to be a lot of work for people who have strong, strong, bad habits of reaction, so that they're they're triggered quickly by things. And alcohol, of course, 
supported that. But there's not a lot to it. It's just learning a new way to engage with reality and, and having the tools to face things rather than needing to get rid of them. Mindfulness gives you that tool to face tools you need to face things. I have a drug addiction that I would like to quit. It violates the fifth precept. What can I realistically do to overcome my addiction according to Buddhism? Mm -hmm. That's a kind of unique one. I mean, you need a lot of work at it. So the best way would be to go to a meditation center and really in, in engage in practice. But in the meantime, you know, beginning to take up mindfulness is something that can help you come to terms with the things that you crave. And the cravings, it can come to term, help you come to terms with the feelings of withdrawal. Honestly, for a drug addiction, I'd probably encourage you to seek professional help. I, mean, I think there are, throughout the world, uh, places that you can go to dry out. And I say this because a person with a drug addiction can have pretty severe um, cravings that they won't be able to deal with. Like we're not, we, we at a meditation center, there's an expectation that a person is capable of helping themselves but there are centers that are that help you in ways that we don't and we're not i'm not helping people them providing them with the opportunity to help themselves but if you're not ready to help yourself meditation might not be enough because you're just not i mean unless you had a meditation center where the people were inclined to spend their time acting as drug rehab agents But yeah, rehab is probably the drug rehab is probably the way to go. And of course, when you're doing drug rehab to to get into mindfulness as a part of that would be great. But I would recommend probably seeking out people who are trained to help people who have drug addictions and facilities that are designed for that. I mean certainly I'd recommend stopping as soon and as quickly as you can stop taking the drug. But uh, that's much easier said than done for a lot of people. So, I mean, the real problem is that rather than, in many places in the world, rather than try and deal with these people, we've criminalized it. And we focused on the criminalization and called it evil. And, and it, I mean, it is like any craving. It's, it's evil, but it's not any more evil than other cravings. It's just... It's dangerous, and because we're not able to deal with a society dangerous things, we just get afraid of them and call them evil. And, and politics, there's lots of reasons why drugs have been criminalized. So there are places in the world now realizing, oh, this was a really bad idea and probably a malicious idea to criminalize drugs. And so they're decriminalizing them and encouraging people. They're you know building up systems to help people. So I, I'll do the surprising thing and say meditation might not be your your um, first step. I mean, no matter what you do, meditation should be there along the way and absolutely keep practicing mindfulness. But at the same time, I would seek out, if possible, some sort of rehab if it's a serious drug addiction. In deep sleep, there is no sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, and thought. How do we describe this reality? I mean, I'm not here to describe reality for you <laughs> or to describe specific realities for you. I don't know, Chris. Tell me about why, why you're putting this question up. Because meditation questions have run out. Oh, well, that's okay then. 
Sorry, I, mean, I don't mean. Sense, but all right, I don't mean to be snide or something like that. But but this is a curiosity question. So in deep sleep, you're not going to be mindful. You're not going to practice meditation. So it's not really something I can help you with. It's not like you need help with this question. That's the point. Do you have any people that need help? Yes. This is not directly about meditation yet either. I'm still preparing those questions for slides. All right. Are there downsides to suicide? If so, please talk about them. So there's not a downside per se to death. I mean, technically. Practically, let's just talk about death first. Practically, there's a huge problem with death. If you're not enlightened, if you're not enlightened, there's a huge problem with just death, regardless of how it happens. And the huge problem is you don't know what's going what's gonna to come next. It's, it's like a crap shot. It's like roulette. So if you're a, gener a genuine, generally good person, it's less of a gamble and you're more likely to go to a good place when you die. But if you still got bad intentions, like if you're still inclined to kill and steal and lie and cheat, like if it's that bad, you, there's, a, there's a good chance you'll be born in one of the lower realms, like as an animal or a ghost, maybe even in hell if you if you die with a really bad mind state and that's hard to predict now that's just death um, the other thing we can say about it is that you're a human and humans have capacity to confront things we have a capacity to be mindful now we don't all have a capacity to be really happy and enjoy life but that's not really the problem that's not really a barrier to freedom, from, to happiness. So some people who have lots of pleasure are miserable, miserable rich people. Some people who are very poor or in poor health can in the end of their lives be very happy. And, and you don't know what's going to come in the next life. You don't know whether you're going to have this opportunity that you have now to even ask these questions to be in touch with Buddhism, to be in touch with mindfulness. So that's a real problem with dying, is you don't know where you're going, even if it's to a good place. It might be a good place where you don't have the opportunities you have now to practice meditation. Now, suicide is the intentional suicide, self-murder. It's the taking of your own life purposefully. So your intention is to deprive yourself of life. Um, and it may seem a fairly neutral thing because you're just performing an act. And the act, of course, is never the problem. Killing yourself is not actually a problem. And let me clarify that. If you, um, if you eat some food or if you eat a, take a pill, and it turns out it was the wrong pill, then you've just done something that killed you, right? If you take poison and you thought it was medicine, you technically you just killed yourself, but you had no idea you were drinking poison or eating poison. So someone would say, well, you didn't really kill yourself because there's no mental component. And so that's ultimately what, what it comes down to, the intention to kill yourself. And so that intention comes from somewhere. Um, and that's really what, if a person uh, does something with the intention to to hasten one's death, then there's a reason for it. There's a desire or an aversion. And it's that desire or aversion that, that is the real problem. And it's going to be a problem because it's quite intense. Ordinary desire and aversion doesn't lead people to kill themselves. Neither does ordinary delusion. It takes an intense amount of greed, anger, or delusion to, to cultivate the intention to actually end your own life. There's some very strong perception and views and you know just ideas that somehow that's going to solve your problems or be the right thing to do or so on. Somehow some people might think of it as like a reset, reset. Oh, well, I rolled the wrong dice, you know, bad, bad, uh, bad luck. 
So I'll just reset things and try again, as though that could happen, as though it were just a re reset. Right? I'll tell you this, it's absolutely not a reset. And that's a very strong delusion that's going to stick with you. It's going to cause some serious problems. You're not going to be mindful or clear of mind when you pass away. So there's huge downsides to suicide. Those intense bad states are going to carry on with you after you die. You're not going to die in a position where you're able to confront things because that's the whole point is that you weren't able to confront things. And you didn't make any effort to or you you gave up the effort to confront things in favor of just getting rid of them. That's a really bad habit. And so it's a very bad karma to kill yourself. I mean, it's not the end of the world. You'll, you'll, you still have a chance maybe in a future life to be reborn as a human again, but it is pretty hard. You're not likely to have a, another chance like this if you do kill yourself. Not in the near future. So people who are suffering a lot, and if that's the reason for killing you, killing yourself, it's really misguided. Because suffering can teach you so much. And you can free yourself of so much suffering if it's there and if you're having to face it. See, so many people never have to face their suffering and so they die or they go through life or they, they're they unprepared for tragedy. And this is why people often consider suicide is because they're not prepared, they're not mentally capable of dealing with it. Here you have the opportunity to do some real serious work by facing it. People who do suffer are forced to face it, and so they can become very mindful if they put their mind to it. It can be a great opportunity to cultivate clarity of mind, which will free you from so much. will change your whole trout, your whole journey in samsara. Has meditation helped people with social phobia to not be on high alert and not care anymore about people existing? Oh, absolutely. But try it out for yourself. Don't take my word for it. My grandfather has terminal cancer and will die in a few weeks. He is not spiritual at all and is now generally depressed and melancholic. Do you have any advice on how I, a meditator, could help him? Well, part of this is non-self. You can't just change the world. So what you do might be in, in adequate. You're not in control. There's nothing you can do to fix things all you can do is act in a mindful way and interact with him mindfully and that in and itself just being mindful in your engagements with people has can have great power it really much depends on him I mean he's the one who has to has to bring himself out of the depression and melancholy he doesn't have to be spiritual he just has to be mindful he has to do the work to you know, if you want to be happy, it's not something you just fall into because you're lucky or lazy. It's something that you have to really work at. So if he's not prepared to do the work, there's not much you can do. But if you're a good example, people take that example from you. How can you reconcile with past mistakes? It's easy to say, let go, but my mind is constantly repeating certain incidents, a loop. How do I get out of a loop that's been with me for a long time? Right, we don't say let go in, in Buddhism. Let's be clear about this. This is an important point. Letting go is not a practice. That would be control, right? It would be like forcing yourself to let go, which is kind of a an oxymoron or something. You can't you can't force yourself to let go. Letting go happens when the clinging ceases. And clinging ceases when you see the suffering that's caused from clinging. 
And seeing the suffering that's caused from clinging comes from looking, comes from observing, comes from being mindful. So all we do is be mindful. We don't try to get out of loops, we just try to see the loops. And the more clearly you see them, the more clearly you understand the, the pieces of the loop, the causes of the effects. And it's that understanding that, that prevents the mind from doing those, from engaging in them, from in increasing them, from reinforcing them. Because we don't do things when we clearly know they're causing us suffering. The problem is that we don't see that they're causing us suffering. And convert, uh, much the opposite, we often think of them as bringing us happiness and fixing things for us. And this one especially, with the mind constantly repeating certain instances, incidents, isn't the problem. The fact that you think it's a problem, that's the problem. And so learning to see the thoughts just as they are will certainly fix that. It won't stop your mind from being in loops. It's not meant to. It's just meant to free you from suffering. While looking at the bus during my commute, I try to be mindful of what I'm seeing and feeling the motion of the bus. Should I do this and return to my stomach from time to time? That's great, yeah, for sure. Does the mindfulness we cultivate now carry over to our next life, or does the mind die? The mind dies every moment. But it affects it, it affects future minds, and that doesn't change when you die. So you'll forget things, but your mind states will be changed in the next life, and mindfulness will be more familiar to you. Um, there's just a lot of factors. Nothing carries over; things just affect other, affect other things. They they condition future things. There's a relationship, that's all we can say. Because you can see that. You, you see that regardless of how it works, why it works, it, it works that way, that's just the way it works. So that's enough. When you see that, then yes, mindfulness is something that will be easy to cultivate in the next life. And likely something that you will take up in future lives because of your practice in this life. But mind is something that dies every moment. Mind is just awareness, something that arises and ceases at every experience. Is meditation just noting? I've listened to many of your videos trying to understand what exactly meditation is. And my conclusion is meditation is noting. Am I right? Well, I don't know if you've read our booklet. But that's what I would recommend. My videos are often about this topic or that topic. But, uh, I mean, the word meditation means many different things. In our tradition, and when I talk about it, I'm referring to our meditation technique. And you can find out more about that if you read our booklet. If you're really interested in learning more deeply, then you can consider taking an at-home course. And the links are should be in the description to the video as well. But uh, it's all available on our website. I'm failing all of my courses. I'm filled with fear of checking my emails. And I feel ashamed to email my professors since I've missed three weeks of class. Will noting help me move past this? I'm stuck. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you have to move past it anyway. You move on. Let's not say move past things. We move anyway, right? We're con time is constantly moving. Noting will help you with that because it'll stop you from suffering. It'll, it'll, it'll end a lot of the obsession and so on. It'll also kill, clear your mind and help you find a way out, ways forward, make, to make decisions that are to your benefit. You're not stuck and you'll never be stuck that's because you're always moving, right? Moving is something that's constant. So... Don't don't get caught in that the idea that you're stuck. You're always present. Whatever just happened is already gone, and so you are moving on. 
the question is, how are you going to move on? And you're not in control of that. You can't just say, I'm going to move on in this way. It's not just a positive affirmation. Because our bad habits are always there. They don't just go away when you decide you want them to go away. You just say, I'm going to be positive and no negativity arises. Just try and see things as they are. When you have bad habits, just try and observe them. When you have fear, just don't try and even get rid of the fear. Just say, afraid, afraid. And if it's there, it's there. That that changes everything, really. Don't worry. In the end, we all get old, sick, and die. School is such a big stress for people. I mean, just the anxiety. Uh, I had that for years after I... After I left school the first time uh, and even throughout high school and and first time I was at university it was just a nightmare thinking about like I'd have nightmares about missing exams and so on there's so much stress that's really meaningless we're all just going to get old sick and die so Try you know mindfulness helps you make good decisions and helps you move forward with your life and find ways to live your life and do things that will help you find livelihood, for example. Don't fixate on specific courses or experiences. You can always move forward and there's always some way to move forward. In the end you're gonna die anyway, so if you die tomorrow or if you die fifty years from now. Don't, don't be too concerned with that. Find a way to live now. Buddha said, don't go back to the past. Don't worry about the future. Try and see clearly what's ever present. Is achieving stream entry without the guidance of a teacher a reasonable goal? With regard to practice, is noting alone sufficient for achieving this? It's, I can't say for the first question. It's, uh, I mean, it's pretty unreasonable, I guess I could say. But it very much depends on the person. Doing doing any of this without a teacher is pretty unreasonable because you're trying to fix your own problems. I mean, that's what meditation is, fixing your own problems, but you're relying on yourself to discipline yourself and, and keep you on the right track. Relying on a teacher to do that is just so much more beneficial. Noting alone, noting alone cultivates uh, mindfulness, and mindfulness helps you see clearly, and seeing clearly helps you let go, and letting go is leads to freedom from suffering, or leads to to stream entry. So, so yeah. I mean, it, it, it's enough, but there's going to be a lot of supporting factors, like you have to be keeping the precepts, and you have to. Um, have right livelihood and all that. You have to be doing things that are conducive. You might even have to practice things like metta and uh, mindfulness of death and mindfulness of the body and so on. As uh, supportive meditations in order to keep yourself on track. There's lots of supportive conditions required. I mean, at the very least, you have to keep the precepts. So if you're doing lots of bad things, you're not likely to become enlightened. All right, it's nine o'clock. Do we have any really important questions? I don't think I'm qualified to judge Bhante. Mm. Well, anything about meditation? Yes. Or someone needs our help? Both of those kinds. All right, let's do the ones where people need our help. That's it then, everyone. No more questions. You can now talk as you like in chat, as long as it's kind and thoughtful and so on. I just found out my family back in Asia paid people to remove a big wasp that hurt my family member house by burning it. How can I help my family after this killing? Well... Finding ways to 
encourage them in in being nicer to their fellow living beings, encouraging them to meditate and so on. Helping family members is not easy. One is one's own refuge. It's very hard to be someone else's refuge to fix someone else's problems. But you can always advise them and give your opinion. You should always be clear where you stand, that you don't think it's right to do such things. But you don't have to go about trying to tell them that or fix them or something. How can one deal with people who intend to lie about the practice and the resulting equanimity? People who villainize the practice and say it results ill will when really they miss controlling others. Well, we don't deal with people in, my, in meditation. We deal with experiences. So you should deal with your own reactions to such people. Again, you don't have to fix them. Just keep yourself from doing wrong things. It's all about doing the right thing, and the right thing is based on mindfulness. It's based on clarity of mind. So focus on that. That's all. Thank you, Bhante. That's it for people who needed help. Okay, that's all for tonight. Thank you all for coming. Have a good night. Thank you, Chris, for your help. Sadhu. Sadhu.